your faith should be very, very, very well informed. That that there, you'll hear a bunch today. Like you'll be like, ah, it's too much. But I just I tried to clean out some and make it littler. But there's different things that are in this one that aren't in that one that aren't in this one that. So anyway, it's it's going to be a lot of scripture today. But you don't have to remember all the scriptures. You just have to get to the place in your heart where if somebody looks at you and says your faith is just blind faith, it's like, why don't you just believe in fairy tales or who knows what? You can look them in the eye and you can tell them, listen, my faith is not blind. It's extremely well informed. And you don't have to have every answer to every question, but your confidence will tell them that they got some questions they need to ask because our faith is not at all blind. So that said... I've, this has been stirring around in me, but we've been having these long conversations lately about the gospel and, and then about holiness. And so I just started a little, a little document, and I just, I, it would pop into my head. I'd throw a scripture in there. And one day I tripped over a video that this gentleman, Bodie Bauckham, had on YouTube, a teaching. He's a very, like, wow kind of guy. And uh, it, his teaching is why you can trust what the Bible says. So he's not necessarily exactly the same topic like blind faith, but it, it parallels it really well. And, and I'll try to remember in the notes when I put the sermon up on the Internet this week, I'll, I'll put a link if you care to listen to the whole of Vody Bauckham. But when he's, he, he asked the question, you know, if somebody said, why do you trust what the Bible says? You know, some pre- people might say this and other people might say that. He said, this is the right answer. And uh, you, I have it in there. You can put it up. This is what Vodibachum says. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. I remember when I was that guy saying, it's just blind faith. It's like, stop it, you know? You're just silly that you believe in stuff that you can't touch, that you can't see. How many have been touched by God, right? How many believe that there is a thing called the wind, right? How many have actually seen that? Okay, you and I need to talk after church, lady. (laughs) But you see the leaves move. But you can't see what's doing it, right? We've been, some of us have physical touches, right? Some people have actually been, you know, touched by God in such a way you fall down. Moses, when he went up on the mountain, he came down glowy, right? I mean, I used to think that you can't tell me about your religion by using your religion's book. That's not fair. You know, it's like, I thought of it like a marketing document. But the reality is the Bible is an historical document and it's not only a standalone historical document it's a um, third party verified historical document so there are historians from the times of our bible writings that confirm what we see in our bible writings so the bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses people who actually saw and they were written during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses So people could question them, and they could say, well, I saw it, but you could go talk to that person, and he will confirm if you're in a court of law, multiple eyewitness testimonies carries a humongous amount of weight, right? 
So during the time of other eyewitnesses, so that they could be corroborated, if I said, hey, listen, you know, that's like the Mormon guy. What's his name? Is it Joseph Smith? Joseph Smith, right? He says, hey, this is all true. And all these people follow what he said, but there was no one to corroborate what he said. That's absolutely not true with Orthodox, Orthodox Christianity. They report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that the writings are divine rather than human in nature. So I told you I'd show you a little clip. Now, J.D. On, or uh, Caitlin, on the volume, I would say err on the side of too loud versus too little because it's a very short video and you might miss some. Before you start playing, let me just give you a little context. You're familiar with the Bible story of Jesus and he feeds the, I don't know which thousands it was, but one of the feeding of the thousands. And when that's all done, he has his disciples get into a boat and he sends them across the Sea of Galilee. But he stays behind, right? And then later, they're in the boat still going across the sea, and Jesus starts to come, right? Okay, here's, he's, these are a couple of his, his favorite reasons why you can trust the Bible. Go ahead, Vody Bakum. One of my favorites, Jesus tells the disciples, y'all go over to the other side of the lake, I'll meet you. Later on on the boat, somebody, I don't know who, they say, hey, um, did Jesus say how he was coming? <laughs> no, why? Because he, he coming. <laughs> or my favorite of them all, Friday, dead, Sunday. Risen. Let's look at some, just some New Testament scriptures that would speak to why our faith is not blind, why we're just not, you know, trusting in something that has no substance to it. Uh, the Gospel of Luke was written by a guy who didn't walk with Jesus. His name was Luke. He was a very uh, learned, very intelligent. Uh, they, they claim him to have been a physician. And Luke uh, went and interrogated people about this Jesus because this other person had come to faith. And he was just saying, hey, let's go figure this out and be sure. So at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes this. In as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truths about the things you have been taught. So somebody actually in that time, on behalf of you know somebody who must have been a big shot, had been, been hearing the gospel for, I would imagine, and then Luke went, and he did that. He went and asked this one, and he asked that one, and he asked that one. And if you read his gospel, you will see that the, it parallels. They're called the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It parallels Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel. Now, Mark wasn't actually walking with Jesus as a disciple, but all of the theologians, at least everyone I've ever read, agree that, that the gospel of Mark is actually... Mark recording Peter's gospel. So Peter 
and Matthew, now Luke, interrogates all these people, and his writings parallel what the writings are of the person that was there. So he actually did the investigation, and the Gospel of Luke, which is now absolutely considered in the canon of Scripture, is the result of him investigating, not to try to sell somebody, but to, to help somebody to know whether or not the thing they were being taught was true or not. Uh, the Apostle John, in his Gospel, chapter 2, Jesus Verses 30 and 31, he writes, There were many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And then towards the very end of his gospel, in chapter 21, John writes this, speaking of himself. This is the disciple, John, of himself, who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we knew or we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that could be written. So the Apostle John wrote his gospel so that people would know this one who claimed himself to be the Christ actually was the Christ. Now, Messiah and Christ, one is the Hebrew word, Messiah, the other is the Greek word, Christ, they both mean the same thing, anointed one. So when you hear Jesus Christ, it's not, you know, like Pat Brady, Christ isn't his last name, it's Jesus, the anointed one. He claimed himself to be the anointed one. That's how Israel was to know who their Messiah, anointed one was, not because they just said so, but because they could see it's like you can't see the wind, but you can see the leaves move. Now you see the evidence of the anointing. More works. If they were all written down, the, the world wouldn't be big enough to hold all the books that would have been necessary. So all the stuff we see, it's just like a tiny fraction of what Jesus did when he was here on this earth. And as I love to remind us, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Okay, this is a long one. Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 39. Just hear the words. I won't expound on this one, but just hear the words. The Apostle Paul here. Excuse me, this is Luke, but it's, it's about Paul. So the same guy, Luke, he went and did further investigation. He actually walked with the Apostle Paul. So here's Luke's account of after uh, Jesus was crucified. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us, this me the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him, capital H, nor the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled by these by condemning, fulfilled these by condemning him. So he's talking to the Jews and others that fear God. That all I said I wasn't going to elaborate on it. Sorry. Um, they they come every Sabbath and they hear about the prophecies and all these things, but they didn't recognize the guy that was being prophesied about. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it, also, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, 
he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So when Paul taught Christ, he taught him from the Old Testament scriptures. That's all he had to work with. He had the witness of Jesus' life. He had the witness of his death. He had the witness of his resurrection. And he had the prophecies that over a thousand years had said it was going to happen. And when he taught Christ, he taught him from the scriptures. This is what they prophesied. This is Jesus. They make the connection. They respond to the gospel and they get saved. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. Apostle Paul again. Speaking of the gospel, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. See, this is important because written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. He's like, listen, at one time there were 500 of us, or them, because he wasn't there at that time. Paul wasn't. And Jesus appeared to them all together. Some of them are still alive. You could go ask him yourself if you wanted to. Maybe Luke was in the audience and said, I think I will. Now this is after Luke. But anyway, the point is, there's witnesses, and there's witnesses, and there's witnesses. There's go ask and see, and that's kind of what we do historically. If you listen to Vody's message, he'll give all these accounts. I, and I'm just remembering off the top of my head, people question what we have as historical documents. There's over 6,000 full or partial manuscripts that agree with each other of the scriptures. And then he gives like Caesar and Socrates and all these ones that you go to any college and nobody argues at all about theirs. One, there's like six documents that attest. And, and they happened like 800 years. They were written 800 years after that person's lifetime. They weren't written within the lifetime of the witnesses like our scriptures are. They were written hundreds and hundreds of years. And we say, well, that's true. Okay, Caesar, whatever. Well, that's true. All this kind of stuff. It's because of the devil, but, but the scriptures, everybody wants to argue about. There is no fact of history in antiquity that is more excellently documented than the life of Jesus Christ. It, it's like George Washington isn't as well documented as Jesus Christ. So when, when he's saying these things, we need to understand this is not a marketing document. It's not a, a glossy brochure that we pass out. This is history that had witnesses, that had the opportunity to challenge what these people were saying, but there's no writings that when people challenged it, that it was proven. You know, that they went to the 300 witnesses and said, no, 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 I was at a concert. That wasn't Jesus. It was like, no, it's true. Okay, well, that's 10 people. Where's, you know, that's 11, that's 12, that's 13. Nobody contradicts it because why? It's true. Amen. All right. Now, this one might be my favorite. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You, you, you know, I mean, I, I am so passionate 
that the witness of the church would look like the body, would look like the witness of its head when he was here in, in fullness. The, the power, the love, everything would be like Jesus walking himself. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, so first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, eyewitnesses, but that wasn't even enough. God also testifying with them by both signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his, God's own will. First the Lord, confirmed by eyewitnesses, God testifying with them, signs, wonders, miracles, gift of the Holy Spirit. Blind faith? I don't think so. It wasn't blind faith for them. Same faith as ours. All right, here's another one. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You're probably familiar with this. Um, I'll read from Mark, which is Peter, but it's also in the other Gospels. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured is the Greek word metamorpho. It's like, you know, like we would see from a caterpillar to a butterfly. Something spectacular happened to Jesus on the top of that mountain. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And we'll just stand outside and shiver. Uh, for he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed. You ever heard the, the phrase glory cloud? You said, no way, there's no such thing as a glory cloud. When you see uh, Peter or James or John, they'll tell you otherwise. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing, overshadowing, <laughs> overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That was a pivotal moment for those three guys. They were Jews. Everything about their life was structured by the prophecies of their scriptures and by the law of Moses. That's, if you wanted to make a decision, what does the law say? What did the prophet say? What does the law say? What does the prophet say? He stands Jesus in between those two people. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, glorifies Jesus in the process, and said, this is my son. I love him so much. Listen to him. There's a different voice. Hebrew says the same thing. In times past, our fathers were spoken to by the prophets and the law, but now the father says, listen to his son. He speaks through his son. So here's Jesus, glorified before these three men. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Now Peter is penning his first of the two letters that we have out to the church in general. And Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we, made known, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven and when we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's saying, listen, we were there. We saw it. It was incredible. We're not trying to, to make up stories, to try to get you to believe something that's not true. We're giving you the testimony of what we witnessed ourselves. How about his crucifixion? And I'll give you Matthew, John, uh, multiple Gospels, because some touch on some and 
Some touch on others, but I want to touch on all. So Matthew 27. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right side and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land to the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. John nineteen twenty three through 25. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. John 19, 31 through 37. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. That's, that's how they got them off the cross. They couldn't take them down until they were dead. They didn't die fast enough. They would bust their legs, and then they couldn't press themselves up to catch a breath. In crucifixion, you typically would die from suffocation because you've got to raise yourself up so that your diaphragm can inflate your lungs. With the legs broken, they couldn't push themselves up, and they would suffocate very quickly and die. They could get them off the cross and get on with their day. Okay, um, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified. They had to walk past Jesus and crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken, which is Psalm 34:20, And it's also part of the Passover instructions. You know the, the story of the Passover, you know, the Passover lamb and the blood on the on the doorposts. Another instruction was that when you prepare the lamb, you're not to break a bone of the lamb. Well, the lamb was a, was a foreshadowing of Christ. And Christ was prophesied to die the way he died, but not a bone. All this other stuff was going to happen, but no bones would be broken. This guy's bone's broken. That guy's bone's broken. Jesus, no bone's broken. And again, the scripture says, they shall look on him who they pierced, which is um, prophesying the spear up into Jesus' side. Now, I forgot, John, in Psalm 22. If you want, just don't even bother with Psalm 22. I'll just read it. I forgot to clean it up to the, just the parts. So let me just read to you from Psalm 22. And, and this actually is the part of the sermon that I got from Vodibachum. This part I wouldn't have gotten on my own. Psalm 22, verse 1. King David is writing this psalm, I don't know, a thousand years before Jesus. And he starts out with this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds kind of familiar, prophetic. 
verses 7 and 8. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip and they wag their head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Don't you think that God was working to get those people to say those things that he prophesied that they would say? If you think he can't get somebody like Darren to be okay with the thing with your grandchildren, here you can see it right here. Their tongues are owned by him just like everything else on this earth is owned by him. He says, I am poured like, out like water. Bam. When you, when you put the spear up, water and blood flew out. They pierced the pericardium. They pierced his heart. All my bones are out of joint. That's a function of being crucified. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Water and blood again. For dogs or Gentiles have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's a really interesting thing he's saying there. Do you know why? Because it was hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. Nobody had ever been crucified when he said in this song. I got chills. When he said in this psalm, they pierced my hands and my feet. You fairy tale believers you are anyway. I can count my bones. They look, they stare at me. Listen to this. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, do you imagine Jesus up on that, up on that cross saying, Hey, guys, guys, don't, 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 don't tear that good one. You've got to cast lots for that one. No, it was prophesied. He didn't have to wonder if it was going to happen. Those guys, they, they, you know, they don't know why. Yeah, let's, just, let's rip it up we'll each take a piece. No, no, you can't. Why can't you? Well, because God said so. Because you have to cast lots for that one. Because hundreds of years ago it was prophesied that that's what would happen at the foot of his cross. Blind faith. You're so gullible. Okay, look at his conception in his birth. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. 700 years, 730 years maybe, before Jesus' conception, Isaiah prophesied it. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Matthew 2, 4 through 6, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, this is a pretty good trick to pull off if you're trying to fulfill the scriptures on your own just to make a case, right? To actually get yourself to be born where somebody thousands of years ago said you're going to be born. If you could pull that one off, you're pretty good. Turns out Jesus did. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, brethren, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler 
who will be my who will shepherd my people Israel. How about some? I mean, they're all prophecies, but how about some interesting specific prophecies? Isaiah fifty three, verse four. The beginning part is the significant part. I'll read it to you, then I'll expound it just a little. God, through the prophet Isaiah, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Now, because of the, the confirmation, I'm going to give you these words, surely our griefs and our sorrows. Griefs and sorrows are translated many different ways, the Hebrew word behind them, okay? And uh, grief, this is the only, griefs, this is the only place, and sorrows, three places. But here's how they're otherwise translated. Our griefs, surely our affliction, our disease, our grief, our illness, our sickness, our sicknesses, he himself bore. And our sorrows, or pain, sorrow, sufferings, he carried. Okay? A prophecy about the Messiah. Matthew eight fourteen through 17. It's also recorded in Mark and Luke. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her head, and the fever left her. And she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Guess what? That day still is this day. This one, my wife will love this one. I almost wish I, wish I would have done it in reverse order, but I won't. Again, Isaiah the prophet. Very, I, the, the book of Isaiah is full of messianic Jesus prophecies. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Remember who the Messiah was, the anointed one? Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. 700 and something years later, this guy this rabbi guy comes out of this wilderness. He gets baptized. He goes into this wilderness experience. He comes out. He wanders back to his little village where he grows up. He goes into the synagogue, you know, their church, and he asks for a scroll. And they give him a scroll. And the scroll he asks for is Isaiah 61. That, you know, didn't have chapters and verses then, but that's the scroll that he asked for. So Luke four sixteen through 20. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened, a, opened the book and found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord, it gives me chills. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he closed, oh my gosh, I don't have the best part, and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
the part I didn't record for my sermon is, he sat down and he said to everybody in the church, in your hearing, these prophecies are fulfilled. Could you imagine? They're like, shut up. It's just Jesus. He grew up here. We know this guy. He declared himself the Son of God. He declared himself Messiah. But anybody could do that, right? You know, lots of people have. Crazy people, delusional people, you know, people, whatever people. Except he did what the prophecy said he would do. He claimed himself to be the anointed one, and then he demonstrated the anointing. Nobody else did that. Jesus said, I am the anointed one. Jesus proved it, not with words, but with deeds done in power under the anointing. Remember, Philippians tells us that he, he took upon flesh and, and, and claimed it, I'm not going to get the words right, but claimed it nothing to, to be desired to be like God, and he set aside his privilege, his deity. So when you read in your Bibles all the things that Jesus did, you're not reading about God doing them, although he was always God. He never ceased to be God. But he couldn't do those things in his deity. He had to do them as a man in flesh under the anointing filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the anointing. All righty. All right, let's, let's look a little bit more about his suffering and his crucifixion and his resurrection. You're like, okay, I got it. You know, I'm ready, but sorry. I took the time to do this. You've got to hear it. They were on the road. This is Mark chapter 10. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus, walking on, Jesus was walking on. Jesus said, don't read too fast. Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Luke eighteen thirty one through 33. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they had scourged him, have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. In Matthew, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles and mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. And then in John fourteen twenty nine, Jesus basically just says, Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I'm telling you before it happens, because it's going to happen, and because I told you before it happened, and then it happened, you'll believe. So, let me just summarize that for you. He told them he would be scourged. He told them he would die. He told them when he would die. He told them how he would die. He told them he wouldn't stay dead. He told them when he would stop being dead. He was scourged. He did die. He died when he told them he would die. He died how he said he would die. He didn't stay dead. And he stopped being dead when he said he would stop being dead. Blind faith, are you kidding me? Seriously, come on. I know you don't think it's blind faith, but seriously. Somebody looks at you and says, blind faith, you're going to have to hold back from just cracking up. It's like, are you kidding me, blind faith? He told him he was going to be scourged. He was scourged. He told him he was going to be crucified. He was crucified. He told him he was going to die. He died. He told him he was going to not stay dead. That's a bold one. He didn't stay dead. He said, not only am I not going to stay dead, I'm going to stop being dead on this day. And he did. 
It's like, come on, seriously. And you want to tell me about Buddha or something? Give me a break. All right. Yeah, baby. Okay, um, I've touched on this stuff. I'll just be as fast as Pat can be, but just a little bit more on, on, on the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Jesus himself said, if you don't believe me, believe the works, believe the anointing, the works, the evidence of the anointing. He said, I am the Christ. Evidence of the anointing. Blind eyes see, deaf ears hear, crippled and withered limbs from birth are healed, dead people living. And just two popped off my head. Jarius' daughter, right? The little girl, she's like 12 years old. You know, yep, she's dead. He's like, get them out of here. They don't believe you. Come with me. And, and when he gets her up, he, does, he must have thought like he was thinking of me. She wakes up. Now she's not dead anymore. And he says, give her some food. I'm like, you know, when I rise from the dead, I'm going to be hungry. You know, it's hard to eat stuff when you're dead. <laughs> Sorry. And then Lazarus is, raised, Lazarus is raised from the dead. He cast out demons. Think about that. Demons. But not just, you know, your casual garden variety demons. There's this garrison demoniac guy who had legions of demons inside of him. He was so crazy, they would put chains on him. He would break the chains. He ran around naked. They're like, hey, you know, somebody put clothes on him. He's like, I can't. He breaks chains. He's nuts. All the demons out. And then he wants to go with Jesus when Jesus leaves. And Jesus says, nope, you stay here and tell him what God did for you. Jesus comes back, and there's a revival going on in that place because... It wasn't just words. It was the crazy demon-filled. Now, there's a whole bunch of crazy dead pigs after that because the pigs, it turns out, got the demons. But the point is, he did that. Oh, and, you know, that's cool, but he also walks on water, and he commands nature. The wind is blowing, and the waves, and everybody's crying. Oh, we're going to die. We're going to die. Jesus says, oh. You wake him up in the back of the boat. He's like, peace be still. Bam, nature just responds to his words. You try that sometime. You could do it. In the anointing, but not without the anointing. And, the, and nature responds. He's walking by. Man, I'm hungry. I'd like to have a fig. Well, Lord, you know, it's not fig season. He's like, I don't care. Curse you, fig tree. They go where they go. They come back. There's a dead fig tree because he told it to die. Because why? Because he's bigger than nature. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that they're... <laughs> I'll tell you in a minute. And claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. you got to watch the video. you seriously got to watch the video because Vodi Bakum is like... Um, he grew up in the projects, like in the in the in the the Bloods and the Crips gang area of Los Angeles. His mom was a Buddhist, single mom, but he was sharp. He was big guy. He got a football scholarship someplace. He was actually got to go to Oxford. He was a, he's an Oxford in England scholar. I mean, crazy smart guy. And so he he talks about people that have this like philosophical slant, and they're going to come up and they're going to challenge him about you know Jesus and. He could tell they had one semester of philosophy. He said, people that have one semester of philosophy should never be allowed to s speak. He said, but I'm going to let you speak because I am going to beat you like a tied-up goat when I'm done. <laughs> Before he says all this, he says, you know, when they do that to me, I'm afraid evil, bad voting is going to get out. 
He's like, sometimes I don't even think bad vote is saved because of the things he wants to say. You know? <laughs> then he goes on, I'm going to beat you like a tied-up goat. You know? <laughs> and he starts explaining why all their arguments make no sense at all. It's so Anyway, so that just popped into my head. That's why I couldn't read. I was thinking about bad voting coming out. Can, can, I just, can I just declare to you, and you can just amen me if you, if you agree, that you do not have blind faith, but you have absolutely, incredibly well-informed faith. Anybody that will take the time and just take a little look, just peel that onion back just a little bit, can find out that, you know, they say, well, your religion is exclusive. It's, it is, because the guy who said he was the guy who he was, who was prophesied for centuries and centuries and millennia, came and did those things that were prophesied to fill fulfill those prophecies, demonstrating himself to be someone that nobody else had ever been or would ever be. And he said, I'm the only way. I said, you could believe in Buddha if you want to, but here's what I would tell you. Right it did. <laughs> Thunder isn't. Nobody else got that. That's truth. That's happened. Dead people don't come back to life. Except because of Jesus. So here, just two more scriptures, and you're good to be up here because I'm almost done. These last couple are for you, just for you, because you already believe. 1 John 1, 1 through 3, John, an eyewitness of God. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then at the end of 1 John, he says this. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, so that you may know that you have eternal life. We don't want to fight and argue with anybody. Arguing with somebody about this is a fool's errand. It's a waste of time. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and unless God puts grace on somebody who is unspiritual, it's foolishness and nonsense to them. If they're interested and you engage that comment about blind faith, you'll be able to tell, but you don't have to argue with anybody. It's all going to sort itself out, and someday everybody's going to know the truth. Some on one side of the chasm, some on the other side of the chasm, sadly. Our mission is not to win an argument. Our mission is the same very mission that Jesus had, to seek and to save that which was lost, in humility to share the truth that we know so that others can become born again and have eternal life with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, Margie, I'm thinking about this right now. I finally remember. How about we take the offering real quick? <laughs> you were getting ready to do it, weren't you? <laughs> Father God, thank you so much for meeting every need. Thank you for, for giving us history so we don't have to wonder whether or not that which we believe is actually true. Thank you that you meet our needs, that you provide for us. Thank you that, um, that if, if uh, Marcy needs some help, we're well provisioned to help her. Um, Lord, if you should stir people to want to participate in blessing her, uh, I say just absolutely amen to that. So we thank you for that which you've given us today to go about your business. We ask that you would use your power to multiply it, to meet every need, and that you would convict us 
in our thoughts so that we would spend it only in the ways that you desire it to be spent. And then finally, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to present your word to all of these people. I pray that each and every one of us will have a humble, I, I highlight, Father, humble confidence in the truth. And that as we speak to other people, Lord, as you lead us to opportunities to be your witness, that we would use our confidence in such a way that would bring people to come into a relationship with you that would cause them to be able to say, you are my father and that they could know you in a saving way and could eternally be reconciled to you, which is our very ministry, reconciliation. So thank you very much. We just praise you. Help us, Lord. Bring your presence into this place. First, Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and truth, that we would praise you with these songs, and and not just the words of our lips, but the actual place of our hearts, God. And then that we would have your ministry, and that as you move us, we would minister to one another in the Holy Spirit, in truth, in Jesus' name, amen. If we could all stand. Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. As we prepare our hearts to go into worship, I just want to share you a personal testimony. Probably seven years ago now. I had a, an, an encounter with Jesus. And I listened to the scriptures, I listened to the message here today, and I have this thing that rises up in me with almost a righteous anger. For those that don't honor and revere our Lord, that consider the the presence of the truth, the word, His words, and here it explained in prophecies and all this time, and yet there's not a reverence. But I can tell you from experience when the creator of this universe, this place that we live, comes upon you as he did me, your whole life in an instant changes. I was at a point in my life where I needed to know that the Lord was real. And we went to a conference. And my heart's cry was, God, I need I need to know that you're real. Because I have been hurt so much by the body of Christ, more so than before I came to know the Lord. I need to know that you are real and you aren't the cause of this pain. And I just cried out. Got in line for prayer. And God heard that prayer. And he took me in an encounter with him for four hours. I was in the presence of the Lord for four hours. 
And I didn't feel at any time that I could come up, could, like I was being held there. I had a choice that I could get up anytime, but I didn't want to because I was in a place where the Spirit of God was hovering over me. And that's why when I raised my hand for, have you ever seen the wind? I raised my hand, kind of in jest. But I saw the hovering of the Holy Spirit over me for four hours. And he showed me my entire life up until that point. If you ever think God isn't real, you're arrogant. And I'll just say that. Because there is a God that loves you more than you realize. But he won't impose himself on you. He looks for the desperate cry of your heart. So four hours I was on the floor as the Spirit hovered over me. And he showed myself in different periods of my life, ending with me as a bride. He allowed me to see myself as a spotless bride. And then Jesus held out his hand to me. And took me in his arms and danced with me as his bride. So don't ever think that he's not real. Don't ever think that you are wiser than he is because that's a very dangerous place to be. And I just want you to hear that he is a loving God. And I didn't feel any fear, but I understood as I laid on the floor the reverence, the holy reverence of God. And life will creep back in things of the world. But you have to continue in his word and see that he comes upon us. Because of this great love that he has for us. And so as we worship today, I just encourage you that he is a life sustainer. He is the one that holds all things together, including you, whether you know him or not. And it's a dangerous place to be to think that you're doing this all on your own. He'll let you think that. He'll let you do that. But fear when the hand of God is removed from your life. Fear that. So, Father, I just thank you for your grace. 
I thank you, Father, that you are the real and the living true God, the one true God that was so beautifully demonstrated today in the scriptures that you've left for us, the demonstration of how we are to live our lives in honor of you, and we bring you glory today, God, with that. Let our lives be a demonstration of the demonstrated love that you have for us. Let us love you back that same way today. In Jesus' name I pray. First, we have to recognize that we are lost without Jesus. And that's where my encounter came because I recognized that I was lost without Jesus. Even though I knew him, I didn't know him. And what was available to me is available to each and every one of us. Once you have an encounter with the Lord, you're going to want to have continuous encounters with the Lord. In Isaiah 6, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with, his, with the train of his robe filling the temple. That speaks of a continuous filling. The train of his robe continuously filled the temple. We are the temple of his Holy Spirit, and we need to be continuously filled with his presence. And we have to recognize that we are lost. We are desperately lost, desperately lost people without him. And I just want to encourage you that if you don't recognize that, There'll be things in your life that you can't shake. And until you recognize that you're lost, I'm not a perfect person by far, but I recognize without him I am completely undone, completely lost. And it scares me to even think of him removing his hand of grace from my life. And not so much what will happen to me, but the thought of living without him. And so when this holy righteousness rises up in me, when I hear people mock him or minimize him in their lives, it's because he's my Lord. And I can hear him crying out, forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. But woe to him who understands that he is Lord, yet continues to do 
those things that he died so that you could have a new life that you would minimize. I pray that each one of you here today that your heart's cry would be to meet your king. My Lord, my Jesus. And your circumstance may not change, but your perception of that circumstance and who's in control and and how everything works out changes. Because you recognize that he has your best interest. He loves you more than anybody here on earth could ever love you. He is faithful. I pray that each one of us comes into an understanding of that today personally between you and your Lord, that we are lost without him. It is a scandal of grace that his love would take place in exchange of your sin. He would be your sin on the cross so that you could have a new life. Thank you, Lord. Oh, to be like you.